The missed warning signs are piling up after the tragedy in Houston. The lead starts right now. Breaking today, the first lawsuit filed after fans were crushed and trampled and eight killed at a concert in Houston. One survivor saying they were just thrown into a, quote, ball of violence. How do we make sure this never happens again? And a new low for President Biden's approval rating in a new CNN poll. What Americans say he is not focusing on enough Plus, everyone from Big Bird to First Lady Jill Biden out working hard to get America's kids vaccinated. What parents need to know as more shots go into little arms. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead, the horrific, deadly tragedy in Texas over the weekend. Houston's mayor telling CNN it could take weeks, if not months, to get answers into what exactly unfolded at the multi-day music festival where eight people were killed and dozens injured over the weekend. The crowd of 50,000 packed so tightly that when rapper Travis Scott took the stage Friday night, concertgoers were crushed and trampled as waves of people in the crowd moved toward him. Videos show attendees trapped against barriers, barely able to move others, reaching out to try and help them escape. At one point, Scott appeared to notice something wrong in the crowd. What the f*** is that? Concert goers had been trying to warn event staff about the disaster as it began unfolding, screaming, stop the show, stop the show, to no avail. The concert continued for more than 30 minutes after a mass casualty event had been declared. Now Travis Scott and concert promoters are facing multiple lawsuits. In moments, Houston's fire chief will join us live for the latest on the investigation, the victims, and what comes next. But first, CNN's Ed Lavendero spoke to some of the concert attendees about how this horrible tragedy happened. Panic and partying is how Jared Cooker described the moments after Travis Scott took the stage Friday night at the Astroworld Festival in Houston. Everyone's screaming. I mean, it's like an airplane crash type of situation. You know, people are screaming like bloody murder. It's kind of just like a matter of fact thought. I was like, okay, this could be it. Um, this could be how, how I go. Cooker says everyone around him was struggling to stay on their feet and breathe. At one point, he fell down and landed on someone he thinks might be one of the victims. I remember looking down, and the person on the bottom was just laying there. Um, and all I could do is I just slapped their face. I think they were they were unconscious. They might have they might have passed at that point. Houston police have launched a criminal investigation into what happened at the concert that left eight people dead. As the mayhem in the crowd unfolded, the show on stage kept going. Multiple civil lawsuits against Travis Scott and the entertainment company Live Nation have already been filed. Before the Astroworld Festival, Travis Scott had faced criminal charges twice for inciting his concert crowds. In 2018, according to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Scott pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct. Police say he encouraged a concert crowd to rush the stage in a 2017 show in Rogers, Arkansas. And in 2015, the Chicago Tribune reported Scott pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor reckless conduct charge for urging a Lollapalooza crowd to climb over security barricades. In an Instagram post, Travis Scott indicated he wasn't aware of how bad the crowd situation had become in Houston. And any time I can make out, you know, anything that's going on, you know, I, you know, I stop the show and, you know, help them get the help they need. Houston authorities released the names of all the victims who died in the crush of people at the concert. John Hilgert was 14 and Brianna Rodriguez was 16. The other victims were in their 20s. Danish Beg, Rodolfo Pena, 
Madison Dubisky, Franco Patino, Jacob Jurenic, and Axel Acosta Avila. And Jake, going into the show, there must have been some concern about the crowd situation here at this venue. The police chief here in Houston confirmed this afternoon that he met with Travis Scott and his head of security in the hours before uh, the main concert event on Friday night and urged the team uh, to be mindful of their social media posts and what they were messaging uh, to the crowd showing up here at this event. But despite all of that, the people we have talked to who were able to escape the deluge of uh, people here at this crowd described a scene where many of the people responding there that there wasn't a sense of urgency to understand exactly uh, how tragic of an event was unfolding in this crowd. Jake? Ed Lavendera in Houston, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Chief Pena. Have you made any progress in determining exactly what went so wrong on Friday night leading to those eight deaths? Jake, first, uh, let me say that our prayers are with the families of the deceased and the uh, injured that are still in the hospital. Um, so the investigation is still in its infancy. We're uh, participating with, uh, along with the police department here in Houston to, uh, to figure out exactly what went wrong. But uh, what we do know is that there was a... a at some point, there was a surge in the crowd when, when uh, Mr. Travis Scott began his, his set. And those people that were closest to the, to the, to the stage itself and around the moats were the ones that uh, were being compressed by the crowd that was trying to filter in and try to, it seems like they were trying to get as close to the stage as they could. Am I correct in saying that the security and medical components of this event were handled by the concert promoters, not the city of Houston? That's correct. The, uh, the medical services were provided by a private company hired by the promoter uh, to, be, to serve that function at, at, this, uh, at this event. Now, the NRG Stadium is a, is a county facility. Uh, it resides within the city of Houston, but it's, it's a county facility. And, uh, and it was sanctioned by, essentially by the county and, and, uh, and that board. And so they have the authority to, to um, or the responsibility to hire those security and the, and the medical components. And in this case, the medical component was, was uh, provided by a private company. So this was not the first Astro World in Houston back in 2019. Three people were trampled um, at, at a festival. Thankfully, they were, they were not killed. They were injured, though. But they were trampled when people rushed to enter. Um, should the city have had more medical teams on standby, knowing the history, knowing that 50,000 people would be on site? Well, uh, Jake, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, the Houston Fire Department proactively uh, prepositioned some some units out there, even though it was not part of the initial of their plan. What we did is uh, is took into consideration the previous experiences we had with with large events. Uh, we had a similar instance in 2019 with the uh, with this particular event, um, the Astral World, where there were some some uh, injuries. So ahead of of this of this event. We prepositioned uh, an incident command uh, uh, post there in the on the footprint. We actually prepositioned some units in there in anticipation of, you know, in case things went wrong, which uh, which I'm glad we did because when as we monitored and maintained situational awareness, uh, we noticed that uh, that things were starting to get out of hand at, at around 9:15, 9:30 uh, after the concert uh, started, and we proactively started to deploy resources closer and as soon as as the uh, 
the communication sounded like they were being overwhelmed as far as the medical component. We started to to deploy units into the uh, into the area to begin uh, treatment, and um, it was um, look. I can't say enough about the work that the uh, men and women of the Houston Fire Department and the Houston Police Department did to ensure that uh, that we we were being proactive. And when the uh, emergency response was required, mm-hmm. we were on the spot. So a mass casualty event was declared at 9:38 p.m., but the concert was not stopped until after 10:10. That's more than a half hour later. You told the New York Times, quote, the one person who can really call for and get a tactical pause when something goes wrong is that performer. They have that bully pulpit and they have a responsibility, unquote. So is it the position of the Houston Fire Department that Travis Scott was responsible for stopping the show earlier? Look, uh, everybody there uh, that was providing security, including the performer, they have certain responsibilities. Um, they have a vantage point that most people do not. The concert was so loud, Jake, that uh, even you know uh, a mile down the street, you can hear the music. So the communication there, if it was voice, it, it was it's very difficult. But there were certainly indications and reports um, of of people approaching the the um, promoters, the security that was there, and letting them know that there was an issue. Um, at one point, even Mr. Scott noticed, uh, I believe, an ambulance in the in the crowd. So there was something going on. And I truly believe, you know, um, that at some point, if, if, the, if the lights would have been turned on, the promoter or, or the artist called for that, it would have it would have chilled the crowd. And and who knows? Who knows what the outcome would have been? But everybody in that in that uh, venue, the starting from the from the artist on down, has a responsibility for, for public safety, I believe. And, and so, listen, all these things are going to be hashed out. Um, again, I don't want to give just my opinion. The investigation is still ongoing. We're going to fully participate with the Houston Police Department. I have full confidence in their ability to, uh, to conduct a thorough investigation about what caused the, this, this uh, tragedy. And it seems like at some point the crowd started to surge towards the front of the stage. And that's what uh, resulted in the injuries and the fatalities. It does seem as though uh, that there do need to be recommendations and lessons learned. So this type of thing does not happen ever again. Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Breaking just minutes ago, Trump associates slapped with more subpoenas in the January 6th investigation. A few of the names you will definitely know. Also, bone-chilling videos of bloodstained shotgun Tears from a grieving mother, the latest on the trial of the three men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you now. The House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol insurrection from January 6th just issued six more subpoenas to top allies of former President Trump. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now live with the breaking details. And Paula, the list includes names that are no doubt familiar to many of our viewers. No doubt, Jake. The committee here clearly targeting some of former President Trump's top advisors, people who worked on his re-election campaign and helped to promote the big lie. Let's go down the list. It starts with former campaign manager Bill Stepien. Also, Jason Miller, former senior advisor to the campaign. John Eastman, he is, of course, the attorney who helped craft Trump's argument that the election was stolen. And his argument has already been debunked by many legal scholars. Now, Mike Flynn, who was involved in meeting about how the Trump campaign wanted to promote the lie that the election was stolen. 
Angela McCallum, an executive assistant to former President Trump's campaign, and Bernard Carrick, who participated in a meeting at the Willard Hotel centered around overturning the election results. Now, all six of these people are being asked to turn over documents by November 23rd, and then they have depositions scheduled any time from the last week of November to mid-December. Quite a rogues gallery there. Any word of if any of these six will abide by the subpoena and testify? It's not clear at this point. But what we know, Jake, is so far this committee has had difficulty getting top Trump aides to offer meaningful cooperation with their investigation. We've seen in that first round of subpoenas to top Trump aides like Dan Scavino, Mark Meadows, of course, Steve Bannon. We've seen in that group they have not been able to obtain any meaningful cooperation. And when it came to Steve Bannon, of course, he just completely defied the committee and was referred for criminal contempt. Now, on Friday, former Trump justice official uh, Jeffrey Clark, he did show up. He at least showed up for his his interview But he stonewalled the committee once he got there. He cited ongoing privilege concerns, ongoing litigation. And at this point, it's just not clear whether these folks are going to go through the normal process of trying to negotiate some way to offer some communication or if they're going to to completely stonewall. So, Paula, one of the reasons why I think it's fair to say so many of these uh, Trump officials are not complying is because uh, they're waiting to see what happens. Uh, Bannon has been held in criminal contempt of Congress by the House of Representatives, and that was referred to the Department of Justice, uh, which will now decide whether or not to to charge him with a crime and prosecute him. Uh, We haven't heard anything, though, from Attorney General Merrick Garland or anybody at DOJ. Do we know when or or if they will ever ever make a ruling? It's It's a great point, Jake. Without any further movement on the Bannon matter, without an indictment, a conviction potentially would be a long way away if he was tried, there isn't really any deterrent for people to stonewall the committee, which is why this is so significant. The attorney general was actually asked about this at an unrelated press conference earlier today. He was asked if he could offer an update. He said no. But in speaking with sources, CNN has learned that prosecutors over the Justice Department, they don't feel a lot of pressure to move too quickly. There has been some criticism that the Justice Department has not moved quickly enough. We know that this attorney general, though, he is known for being methodical. He is not known for moving very quickly on matters. He likes to read everything, go through everything line by line. Also notable that the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, who will be handling this matter, this is the first full day for him on the job. He was just put in, installed on Friday. So all of these factors together, it's frustrating for some people, but also it seems potentially reasonable for prosecutors who are still working on this and just haven't come to a conclusion on how they're going to proceed yet. So these latest six individuals that the committee has subpoenaed, including uh uh, Jason Miller and John Eastman, Mike Flynn, Bernard Carrick, et cetera, like I said, a real rogues gallery. Uh, they're joining dozens of people uh, who have been subpoenaed uh, overall by the committee. How successful has the committee been in general getting others to testify? It's a big question, Jake. We know they've spoken to over 150 people. That number is, of course, supposed to be very impressive. But we don't know exactly what they've learned from those people and who all those people are. And I've been surprised in my own reporting and calls that I've made to people that I know were around the president at that time who say that they have not been in touch with the committee. So at this point, it's really unclear how much meaningful cooperation they've gotten from people who would actually be able to help them with the matters at the heart of this investigation. All right, Paula Reed, with all the latest, thank you so much. Let's turn now uh, to the White House and some disappointing poll numbers for President Joe Biden. In a brand new CNN poll, a majority of Americans, 52 percent, say they disapprove 
of his performance as president so far, 48% approve. And the number of Americans who disapprove has only grown wider in recent months. It's up 52% from 41% in March, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us. Now, the Biden administration is hoping and praying that legislative victories could turn things around for them. President Biden returning to the White House after notching a win on his trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Finally, Infrastructure Week. With one victory under his belt, the president now turns to part two, passing an even larger spending bill that will require the support of virtually all Democrats. We're going to work really hard to get it done. It's, it's going to go for a vote out of the week of November 15th out of the House, and then we're going to work with Leader Schumer. The roughly $2 trillion framework to expand the social safety net and curb climate change faces multiple hurdles and must pass the House before likely being changed by the Senate. I'm sure the Senate will make changes. That's the way the legislative process works. For now, administration officials are focusing on selling the infrastructure bill. A lot of this sells itself because communities never needed to be persuaded that their bridge needed to be fixed or that their airport needed an upgrade or that their ports needed investment. With nearly $600 billion in new federal aid, the historic investment includes more than $100 billion to improve aging highways, roads and bridges, another $39 billion for modernizing public transit, $25 billion to improve airports, $55 billion for clean drinking water, and $65 billion to boost access to the Internet. Only 13 House Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. Infrastructure, however, enjoys 75% approval rating, passed on a bipartisan... Its roads create jobs and boost the president's approval rating, as a majority now disapprove of his job performance. They are in a show-me-don't-tell-me mode. I think we are going to show them in the weeks and months ahead. 58% of Americans say Biden hasn't paid enough attention to the nation's most important problems. And more than a third believe the economy is the biggest issue facing the country. If a president can get two legislative houses of his own party to deliver, the president suddenly becomes pretty popular. Now, Jake, when it comes to delivering on what the White House is billing is the Build Back Better agenda. That's that second larger piece of legislation. The president was just asked on the South Lawn about how to build momentum behind that. And he said he does believe it's going to be a tough fight to get that passed. But he does believe people are starting to realize it's important they get it done. Of course, Jake, how and when they get that done still remains to be seen. Yeah, and infrastructure is a pretty big deal. It happened late Friday night, so he didn't get the attention during the week, but that's a that's a pretty big bipartisan accomplishment on its own. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. The sole survivor testifies after being shot a Rittenhouse during protests in Wisconsin last year. Stay with us. We're watching a pair of high-profile, highly charged trials in our national lead. First, a Wisconsin jury today heard from a trained paramedic who was shot and wounded by Kyle Rittenhouse last year. Rittenhouse, who was 18, faces first-degree intentional homicide and other charges in the killings of two other people during last summer's Black Lives Matter protests. CNN's Omar Jimenez is covering the trial. Omar, what did today's witness tell the jury? Yeah, Jake. So Gage Grosskreutz is the sole survivor of those who were shot and killed by Kyle Rittenhouse back in August of 2020. And today's testimony really focused on the moments leading up to that shooting, the loaded gun he had on him at the time, which he testified was routine, 
and the positioning of the gun at the time of the shooting. Now, the way he described that night beginning, he testified he heard the gunshots that killed Joseph Rosenbaum down the street. Not long after, he sees Rittenhouse and he believed he was an active shooter. Then he was among a group that chased in Rittenhouse's direction. Some began to attack Rittenhouse. Then gunshots, including the one that killed Anthony Huber. And Grosskreutz was now standing feet away and testified he put his hands up and as Kyle Rittenhouse re-racked his weapon and as Grosskreutz believed he was going to be shot and his surrender would not be accepted. The defense stayed in that moment during cross-examination and pushed further past when his hands were up. Take a listen. When you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the air, he never fired, right? Correct. It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him advanced on him with your gun now your hands down pointed at him that he fired right correct now as you can imagine that's a pretty critical exchange uh in this case the prosecutors had a chance to question gross again and did lay down on the fact that gross testified he did not intentionally point the gun in the direction of Rittenhouse and that he believed he was in imminent danger of being killed, along with the fact that he said this is not how you would point a weapon at someone if you were trying to. And remember, this just involves the situation around the survivor, Gage Grosskreutz. Rittenhouse is also facing homicide charges tied to the deaths of Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, and prosecutors still haven't rested their case, but they are expected to do so at, uh, early this week is the last check we've been given, Jake. All right. Omar Jimenez in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thank you so much. Testimony also resumed today in the trial of three white men accused of chasing and killing Ahmaud Arbery, a black jogger in Georgia. CNN's Martin Savage is in Brunswick following the testimony. And Martin, the first officer at the scene of the shooting, he testified today? Yeah, he did. Ricky Minshew. He's former Glenn County police officer And what he had to say was uh, very interesting in a lot of regards. First and foremost, it should be pointed out, he says that he was in the neighborhood just seconds before the shooting. He'd been drawn there by a non-emergency call, which apparently was reporting a suspicious person in the neighborhood. So as he's slowly cruising through the neighborhood, back windows down, he says in order to listen, he hears a number of gunshots. And then moments later, comes around the corner, and there he sees the scene of Ahmad Arbery lying in the street, covered in blood. And then he also sees a very agitated Travis and Gregory McMichael. Now, what's also crucial about his portrayal of things is not only what he says he saw, he's got a body camera on. So we see the very first moments after the shooting has allegedly occurred, and you're hearing some of the first words. Criticism was placed against this officer because he admits... He didn't attempt any life-saving measures on Ahmaud Arbery, but he also talks and was questioned by the prosecution about an exchange with William Roddy Bryan, a man who says he didn't initially participate, but this exchange would suggest otherwise in the chase. Listen. Did he say specifically that he blocked Ahmaud during this chase? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Did he say specifically that he cornered Ahmad during this chase? Yes, ma'am. Okay. How many times did Mr. Bryan say that he either blocked Ahmad or cornered him during this chase? Uh, after going back and reviewing um, the uh, transcribed body camera, it appeared to be approximately five times. 
And the means by which he was doing that blocking, as we know, Jake, was using his pickup truck. One last thing, there was also the initial crime scene investigator. She noted that she went through Ahmad Arbery's pockets. She found no evidence of any weapon, which had been suggested, and also no indication that he had anything on his person. In other words, going to this perception that somehow he had stolen something, which is what initiated all of this chase and suspicion. Jake. All right, Martin Savage, thank you so much. The push to get more vaccine sites for children as families get rather get, get ready to gather for the holidays. We'll talk to a medical expert on kids and vaccines next. Stay with us. In our health lead, the White House dispatched First Lady Jill Biden to kick off a nationwide push to get more children vaccinated with COVID-19 shots. Moments ago, Dr. Biden and the Surgeon General visited a school in McLean, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., Franklin Sherman Elementary, the first school to administer the polio vaccine in 1954. Let's bring in Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. Uh, Dr. Offit, good to see you. So the White House wants more schools to host vaccine clinics. In a letter to school superintendents, the Biden administration notes there is, quote, ample funding and resources to help from the American Rescue Plan that passed earlier this year. The White House also notes that information and encouragement directly from schools could help raise vaccination rates. Um, But do you worry that many schools might just not want the headache? Well, first of all, I think it's a great idea. And so those schools that are willing to do it, it would certainly be a major contribution. It does remind one of the polio days. When you're trying to mass vaccinate children, um, sometimes the easiest way to do that is through schools. But obviously, I think the fallback is going to be in pediatricians' offices. Since vaccines for children uh, 5 to 11 became available available last week, we've seen an, an overwhelming response in some parts of the country with parents lining up with their kids to get shots for them. One father in the D.C. area told me, uh, told us rather, that he waited three plus hours to get his kids vaccinated. Think about that for a second. These are restless, impatient kids waiting hours to get a vaccine. Not an easy task. Um, But the, the clinics alone could theoretically be sources of community spread, one would think. Well, again, I mean, I think as long as we're, we're careful and, and about masking and doing the best we can in terms of social distancing, I think that we'll be OK. Uh, I, I do think this is a major advance. Finally, this is great news for children. We know that the children can suffer and be hospitalized and die from this virus. When the virus first came into this country early last year, children accounted for fewer than three percent of cases. Now they account for 27 percent of cases. This is a childhood illness. The Delta variant, this highly transmissible variant, has found a susceptible group, reached down into this group and is now causing a fair amount of suffering and hospitalization and occasionally death. We can prevent this now and we should. Yeah, kids are getting it. Kids are suffering from it. And kids are kids are the vector of of the disease right now. They're the ones spreading it. Um, But children getting vaccines this week likely won't be getting their second shot until after Thanksgiving. What advice do you have for parents? Do you think there's enough protection from a first shot that you would say it's okay for them to be Uh, at grandma's house for a larger indoor gathering for Thanksgiving. Yes, I think it is. I think you get that first, get get vaccinated as soon as you can. And if it comes to be that, you know, obviously the three week period uh, between the first dose and the second dose, obviously gonna, is going to include Thanksgiving. That's OK. I think one dose is a, is a good start. And yes, still see, see grandma. Be careful if you can, um, th- because you're not completely protected with one dose. You need that second dose. But I think that's OK. Big Bird and and the uh, other creatures uh, from Sesame Street have long been part of the effort to try to encourage vaccinations. R2-D2 was back in the day in the 70s after Star Wars came out. 
But Republican Senator Ted Cruz is now attacking Big Bird of all people after or all bird after of all birds, rather, after a CNN special Saturday morning aimed at educating kids and answering their questions, Big Bird put out a tweet, and in the tweet, Senator Cruz called the idea of Big Bird getting a vaccine, quote, government propaganda for your five-year-old. Um, you're a pediatrician. What do you make of that? I'm glad Ted Cruz wasn't around during the polio crusade. I mean, we often use celebrities like Elvis Presley and and other movie stars and and, uh, actors and actresses um, to promote the polio vaccine because we look to to people who are celebrities um, as as because they're interesting um, and therefore they're influential. Um, This is not new. And Big Bird is influential. So I'm glad that Ted Cruz wasn't around back in the polio days. You're on the uh, FDA's vaccine advisory committee. We learned as soon as this week, Pfizer plans to request emergency use authorization for its vaccine booster for anyone 18 years and older. Right now, boosters are authorized for those 65 plus and people with certain medical conditions. What data do you think it's important for your panel to see? I think what we need to see is is why there's a compelling need to do that. I mean, certainly there clearly is evidence that if you're over 65 years of age, uh, you are better off receiving three doses rather than two in terms of protection against serious illness. In terms of protection against serious illness for those other age groups, the data is less compelling. So we need to see those data. So we, we are convinced that that is the sensible thing to do for this country. But as Dr. Walensky said, head of the CDC, we're not going to boost our way out of this pandemic. What we need to do is vaccinate the unvaccinated. All right, Dr. Paul Offa, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Tens of thousands of migrants, many of them families with children, being asked to show up in court. What that's about, next. International aid now deportation case notices will soon be in the mail for 78,000 migrants who recently crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. Sources say these are migrants who were released into the United States with only paperwork in an effort to ease overcrowding at already stretched thin border facilities. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live near the southern border in El Paso, Texas. Priscilla, why are these notices being sent out now? Jake, these are notices that would have been given from the start. That is that initial encounter with a migrant. But given the overwhelming number of migrants that crossed the U.S.-Mexico border this year and the immense strain that U.S. Customs and Border Protection was under, they actually provided documents that would get them out of processing faster. Those were notices to report to an ICE office. So that gained heavy criticism from Republicans who said the administration was releasing migrants into the United States without knowing where they were going. And now the administration is backtracking and essentially sending those additional documents now that would provide uh, information on processing, as well as, most importantly, notices to appear to their immigration court hearing. So really initiating their removal proceedings, Jake. And you're hearing from immigration attorneys who are really worried about this process? Their primary concern is, does the government know where they live? Do they have their current address? And do they know if they've moved that from that address? And the reason this is important is because the consequence of not showing up to your immigration court date is that the immigration judge can order you be removed without going through your immigration court proceedings. So essentially, attorneys having a lot of questions here about how this is going, going to go and what response the immigration judges are going to give if someone doesn't show up uh, to their immigration court date. And Priscilla, tell us what you've seen on the southern border of the U.S. today as the U.S. is is reopening for vaccinated international travelers. 
Well, life is really sort of kicking back up again here in El Paso, Texas, and across border communities in the United States. We have spoken to people who are reuniting with friends that they haven't seen since 2019, as well as people who are crossing to uh, buy products uh, that they can sell back in Mexico or check their banks. I mean, these border communities are so linked to one another, and these local businesses rely on cross-border travel. So there has been a lot of excitement throughout the day among the people that we've spoken with who have crossed the border for those non-essential purposes. Those were the reasons people couldn't cross before today. And as you can see behind me, we are at a port of entry. Traffic has fluctuated throughout the day. Currently, there are some more vehicles coming through from Mexico to the United States. And U.S. Customs and Border Protection expects that this is going to happen over the next few days, that there will be larger travel volumes and increased wait times. But overall, a big moment for border communities, Jake. Border mayors just excited to get their economies back up and running. All right, Priscilla Alvarez in El Paso, Texas. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. In our worldly today, a rare conversation with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Sources tell CNN that CIA Director Bill Burns spoke with Putin last week to discuss serious and growing concern about Russia's military activity. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins me live. And Natasha, this specifically involves, you say, a troop buildup along the Russian border with Ukraine? That's right, Jake. So two reasons that CIA Director Bill Burns really went to Moscow last week. The first was to warn the Russians, warn Putin specifically, that the U.S. is monitoring these concerning troop movements that they're seeing around the border of Ukraine. The second is to really gauge Russia's intentions. What are they actually trying to do here? Are they trying to intimidate Ukraine? Are they doing some kind of military exercise? Or are they preparing for some kind of invasion? The Biden administration does not want to take any chances here. And so Bill Burns, the CIA director, has been a really key intermediary throughout these last few weeks as they have seen this concerning military activity near the Ukrainian border. Uh, Bill Burns also called uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky after he spoke with Vladimir Putin to kind of brief him on what the conversation had been like, explain to him that the U.S. is monitoring this, is concerned about it. And as well, the State Department actually sent someone, a senior official, over to Kiev last week to, again, reiterate the U.S. support, U.S. concerns, and get any kind of feedback from the Ukrainians as to what kind of support the U.S. can give to them. What else did Burns discuss with Putin? I would assume that a CIA director on the phone with Vladimir Putin might bring up more than one issue. Yeah, so they talked about cybersecurity. They talked about regional issues. They talked about uh, the diplomatic crisis that is unfolding between both countries. Namely, uh, you know, the U.S. has roughly cut its, its staff by about 90 percent since 2017 due to a tit for tat that's been going on with Moscow. And, uh, Moscow wants more diplomatic staff here in the U.S. as well. So they discussed that. Um, but really, uh, apart from the Ukrainian issue, cybersecurity ran Somewhere. That was really a big issue that they spoke about. Of course, President Biden issuing a, a pointed statement today after this big law enforcement, uh, you know, takedown of a ransom of ransomware operator saying, I told Vladimir Putin in June during our summit that I was going to hold these ransomware actors accountable. That is exactly what I've done today. So clearly a strong message to uh, Vladimir Putin being sent by the president and one of his top, uh, you know, national security officials. How unusual is it for a CIA director to talk to the president of Russia? I could see a CIA director talking to a FSB director in Russia, their equivalent. But but for a CIA director to talk to the president of Russia? You know, it's not unheard of. And Bill Burns has had conversations in the past with Vladimir Putin. But Bill Burns is also a very experienced diplomat, right? He was the ambassador to Russia. So he is seen as someone who is highly capable of having these very high-level conversations with President uh, Putin. He is seen as someone very credible by the Russians because of his vast experience in the country. And so he is very entrusted by President Biden to carry out these kind of high-level diplomatic tasks, even though he is the director of the CIA. Now, of course, there is 
a lot of perhaps activity that is being conducted by the CIA in and around Russia. They want to be able to gauge Vladimir Putin's intentions directly. And who better to do that than the CIA director in this case? All right, Natasha Bertrand, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Donald Trump set to speak at a Republican fundraiser tonight as the party grapples with his role going forward. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the U.S. finally back open for foreign travelers if they're vaccinated, but the reopening comes right as cases in Europe are surging. Plus, while we're in Europe, former President Obama back on the world stage there, saying the world is, quote, nowhere where we need to be when it comes to battling the climate crisis. And leading this hour, the midterm elections exactly one year from today in the wake of the elections last week, Republicans are confronting a key question for the future of the party, whether to continue to embrace Donald Trump, with some prominent Republicans openly acknowledging that his involvement could hurt the GOP's chances at the polls. It's a tricky dance. Donald Trump has threatened to leave the Republican Party before. Journalist Jonathan Carl reporting in his upcoming book, Betrayal, that as Trump was leaving office, he told the RNC head he was going to create his own political party. Yet tonight, Trump is set to speak at a fundraising dinner for the National Republican Congressional Committee. Now, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, at least one possible 2024 presidential contender is urging the GOP to stop talking about the past. A Republican resurgence is in the air, exactly one year before the 2022 midterm elections. We can no longer talk about the past and the past elections. No matter, no matter where you stand on that issue, no matter where you stand, it is over. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie offering a blunt roadmap for the party's future. Every minute that we spend talking about 2020, while we're wasting time doing that, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer are laying ruin to this country. We better focus on that and take our eyes off the rearview mirror and start looking through the windshield again. He's talking, of course, about former President Donald Trump. I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? The proverbial elephant in every Republican room, whose conspiracy theories, grievances, and score settling are a driving force in a party still firmly in his command. A year after losing the White House and control of Congress, Republicans are at a critical crossroads as they capitalize on Democratic divisions in hopes of reclaiming their majority. Is President Trump part of that discussion? Of course he is. And, and those voices that want to silence him I think are ridiculous. Fresh signs of optimism are coursing through the GOP, following a big win in the Virginia governor's race and a stunning finish in New Jersey. Yet those signs of strength have shined a brighter light in balancing the risks and rewards of embracing the former president. Today in Kentucky, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell instructed his party to spend more time talking about President Biden. The key to 22 is to have a discussion with the American people about how they feel about the new administration and the Democratic Congress and what they're doing. So I think the election will be about the future, not about the past. Trump's role in midterm election races and whether he runs for president again is a central question hanging over the party. At a weekend GOP gathering in Las Vegas, that question was on the back burner as former President Mike Pence and a parade of Republicans made appearances. 
just 12 months away from a great Republican comeback, and we're going to win back this country in 2024. That field of potential 2024 candidates is already taking shape, with more than a dozen ambitious Republicans in the earliest stages of exploring a run, some of whom said they would step aside if Trump steps up again. Not Christie, who told CNN's Maeve Reston that doing so would be a sign of weakness. Anybody who says that they'll step aside for anybody else, I'd say to you, doesn't belong being president. You don't believe in yourself enough to stand up to anyone, then you can't possibly stand up for everyone. To rebuild, Republicans know they must win over at least some of the suburban voters who left the party under Trump. That was one of the brightest spots for the GOP in last week's elections. Longtime Republican Ari Fleischer, a former White House press secretary, said any questions about Trump would be answered after the midterm elections. This suburban reversal is significant, with or without Donald Trump on the ballot. The trick for Republicans going forward, in my opinion, is to keep revving up the rural areas and the lower, edu- lower uh, income, non-college educated areas, and just be reasonable in the suburbs. Don't scare people and the suburbs will come home. Now, it is a critical midpoint. A year ago yesterday, Joe Biden declared victory over Donald Trump. And a year from tonight, the votes in those midterm races will be counted to determine who controls the House and the Senate. Now, the the party out of power always holds historic advantages in midterm races. But history offers few answers for how to navigate the former president, who remains at the center of it all, energizing some voters and alienating others. Now, Jake, he did tell Fox News earlier today he plans to make a decision about 2024, probably after the midterm elections. Yeah, a lot of his top aides, including Mark Meadows, says he's he's definitely going to run. Jeff Zeleny, uh, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our, our team uh, and, and Nolan McCaskill. Let me start with you. Um, Trump ended up not campaigning with Glenn Youngkin, uh, who didn't reject Trump, but kept him at arm's length. Uh, is Trump going to be able to show the same restraint in 2022? <laughs> I think that's the million-dollar question for Republicans. Will Trump show the same restraint? I think it's easier to do when it's one candidate in one race, uh, as far as Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. When you have all of the House Republicans and their candidates running for re-election, I think it's much difficult for him to refuse the attention. I mean, he can see someone who's been kicked off Twitter, he's been kicked off Facebook, you know, he has to release his statements uh, via email, you know, he doesn't get the same cable coverage that he once did. But when it comes to 2022, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if Donald Trump is someone who does want to get back out there, who does want to get that attention, who does want to help Republicans raise money, because that does come with more attention for him and kind of, you know, elevates his profile going into 2024. So it wouldn't surprise me uh, if Donald Trump was much more of a factor in 2022. Uh, but obviously, we'll just have to wait and see how that works out. Yeah. And, and he, Glenn Youngkin was not running as a Trump candidate, but some of them are out there running as Trump candidates. One gubernatorial candidate that Trump has endorsed, Carrie Lake of Arizona, uh, she has publicly embraced at least one Nazi sympathizer and other QAnon-linked activists at her campaign events, according to CNN's K-File report. Uh, K-File reports um, this story. You can check it out online. If Trump continues to back candidates who seem rather extreme out there, uh, that could alienate uh, the voters that other Republican candidates say in Arizona need to win over. Particularly if you're at the Republican Governors Association, you're looking at that and saying, come on. Right. And, and, but, you, but, but it just shows how little the party establishment has control over what former President Trump does and that he's still in the driver's seat. I mean, look what happened in Georgia. 
I, th- I don't think it was a secret that Mitch McConnell wasn't really thrilled initially with the selection of Herschel Walker as the Trump candidate. Now he seems to, at this point, has learned to love it because he can't not. Mm-hmm. But with some of these other candidates, it's going to be harder to love for these more establishment Republicans that, you know, want to take back the country, want to take, in terms of the governorships, want to take back the House and the Senate and push their agenda without the sort of crazy free radicals that um, are also incumbent in some of these Republican, uh, some of these Trump-selected candidates. And he's doing uh, an event, Trump, for the uh, NRCC tonight, the National Republican Congressional Committee. But according to uh, this new book coming from ABC News, Jonathan Carl, Trump, on his way out the door in January this year, told the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, uh, that he was leaving the Republican Party to create his own political party. He didn't care about destroying the GOP. And it wasn't until party leaders told him they would stop paying his legal fees that Trump backed down from creating his own party. I I guess my question is, how can the NRCC just welcome him knowing that his his, uh, allegiance to the Republican Party is so fickle and literally comes with strings attached? Yeah, and I was going to mention that dinner tonight. Trump didn't invite himself, to my knowledge, right. to be the dinner speaker for the National Republican Congressional Committee. There are plenty of other people who would have been happy to speak, and the establishment would allegedly have been happier to see people than Trump. They want Trump. This is all a myth that, oh, those Republicans really want Trump far away. A few of them do. Youngkin running for governor, not a federal office, in Virginia, a blue state that Biden won by 10 points. The Ohio Senate candidates, the Georgia Senate candidates, they don't want Trump far away. And I very much agree with Jackie. The, the McConnell endorsement of Herschel Walker and Thune, I guess the whole leadership of the Senate endorsed him, right? Uh, a- after Trump had, had tapped him, shows that they are, they know their fate is tied to Trump for now. They deep down, late at night, maybe they hope he'll miraculously disappear, but they will do nothing to make him disappear. And even Chris Christie, who's being heralded as the one guy who's standing, he's not standing up to Trump. He's sort of hoping that people won't talk too much about Trump. That's why I think it's so hard for all the Republicans who said after Glenn Youngkin won, this is our path. Well, it's not going to be very easy for that to be their path if they are embracing Trump and vice versa. Look, I think it was easy for Trump to stay out of the Virginia governor's race because it was kind of a one-off, I think, to him, right? It didn't really signify power. The midterm elections signify power, especially if he is able to say that it's because of him that Republicans took the House back. You also have a ton of Republicans that aren't like Glenn Youngkin, that they are like many Trumps, right? And you just talked about one. And so I think it's going to be really hard going into the midterm elections for Republicans to replicate what happened in Virginia, because to your point, Bill, many of them can't quit Trump. And frankly, Trump, it's not that they he can quit the GOP. He said he could. He can't quit power. Yeah. And but, this to him signifies power. And Youngkin won a weird convention, which which they manipulated. Right. Well. It wasn't, there won. wasn't a primary. If there had been a primary, I'm not sure he would have won. And to win, he would have had to have been much Trumpier than he had to be. And Trump still claimed credit the next day. Yeah, that's not <laughs> right. right. Well, the, probably more uh, important to the 2022 midterms uh, is where Joe Biden stands with voters, right? He is the incumbent. Uh, today, uh, Nolan, take a look at this. Biden is seeing more disappointing poll numbers. A new CNN polls finds 48% approve his job performance, 52% disapprove. When you compare this with past presidents, he does do better than Trump, and the same as Clinton. There are other polls that have his approval lower than the CNN poll. Mm -hmm. Um, But even so, Clinton, Obama, Trump all went on to lose majorities in the House. I mean, Joe Biden is probably more important in the midterms than Donald Trump. And Joe Biden is 
a, an albatross on Democrats right now. Right. I mean, the good thing for President Biden is that, you know, this poll is a snapshot of right now. So he still has a year to try to make up his approval rating. He's got a he's got time to try to sell this infrastructure bill. If Democrats are able to pass this larger reconciliation bill, he has time to sell that. But right now it's not looking good. He's had a rough stretch as president uh, with all of these negotiations on Capitol Hill that have just sucked so much oxygen up from other conversations. Uh, but the good thing is he, he still has time. I mean, yeah. we're in 2021. Uh, Democrats got a reality check from the Virginia elections. And I think they need to figure out what went wrong and use that to their advantage uh, going into 2022. But also, like you mentioned, the midterm environment is tough for an incumbent president. Uh, there isn't much that he can do, but he can try to sell legislation. 58 percent of Americans, uh, Jackie, 58 percent say Biden has not paid enough attention to the nation's most important problems, I believe, number one on that list for most of the voters who say that are, is the economy. Can Democrats turn this around? Uh, I'm not saying 100 (laughs) percent. You can't buck historical trends, but you mean there's a difference between losing 20 seats and losing 70 seats. And I think that's the question. You know, when I was talking to moderate Democrats months ago, they were worried about inflation. Yeah. They were worried about and, and since that it was it, and, and COVID and the economy are linked. Um, we're not at a point in the pandemic where you can unlink them because it's still climbing back. So as long as people still don't feel like the economy is 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 uh, working for them, that's going to be problematic for these Democrats whose seats are at risk. And, you know, when Democrats have won uh, midterms or done well in midterms, it's because they talk about health insurance. They talk about economy. They talk. It's not because they talk about Donald Trump, I have to say. That's exactly right. And I think that what also happened in the last couple of months, and we we talk about how, oh, it's the sausage making, but that's all that Americans saw was Democrats fighting each other about what's going to be in these bills that, you know, whose, whose titles really have nothing to do with people's everyday lives. And so they saw the sausage making, but frankly, that sausage was giving Americans indigestion. And so they need to talk about now that the infrastructure bill is passed and if the bill back better passes as well, what does that mean in terms of your health, in terms of your economy, in terms of how you're going to be able to take care of your family, and frankly, in terms of education. They need to take back this education issue which we know we knew was a debacle in Virginia, and I yeah. think they can do it. Thank goodness, to your point, the midterm elections aren't being held tomorrow. Yeah, we'll see <laughs> if that works. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing all the people who voted against the infrastructure bill going to the ribbon cutting. So it's going to be <laughs> exactly. going to be fun. That's right. Fun. Uh, thank you all for joining. Appreciate it. Top health official says Europe is once again the world's epicenter of COVID cases. Right as the U.S. is opening its borders to vaccinated travelers, we're going to go live to Paris next. And hackers now charged with infecting up to 1,500 businesses and collecting millions in ransom. How much is the U.S. going to be able to get back? That's ahead. In the healthy aid, almost two years into the pandemic, and today Germany reported its highest COVID infection rate ever. And cases are so high in Europe, the World Health Organization considers the region an epicenter of spread. Now, despite all that, today the United States is loosening travel restrictions and letting fully vaccinated travelers from 33 countries, including much of Europe, come on in. CNN's Melissa Bell is in Paris, where some of the first flights originated today. The bags are packed and they're ready to go. 
For the first time in more than a year and a half, the United States finally opening its borders to foreign vaccinated travelers. And what that means this Monday morning here in Charles de Gaulle Airport here in Paris in the 2E terminal is a much busier terminal than I've seen in a long time. And a lot more flights up on the boards to Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York, Miami, and some pretty excited travelers. We, we are happy because of the weather, especially. <laughs> we can call it freedom, yeah. I hope it continues uh, after because uh, we hesitate about, you know, the, the, the fourth wave who is upcoming. And I don't know if the borders will be closed again one time. That new wave of infections has already arrived in Europe, causing the World Health Organization to sound the alarm late last week. Cumulatively, there are now more reported cases, 78 million, in the European region than in Southeast Asia, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Western Pacific and Africa combined. We are once again at the epicenter. The reason for the European surge? Likely a combination of factors, including low or lagging vaccine rates in Eastern Europe, the circulation of a new subvariant of the highly transmissible Delta variant of the coronavirus, one that's estimated to be even more contagious, colder temperatures pushing more activities indoors, waning immunity from early COVID inoculations and infections, as well as fatigue and complacency surrounding protective measures like mask wearing and careful hand washing. The end result, a startling statistic. In the last four weeks alone, Europe has registered more than a 55% rise in new COVID-19 cases. But so far, those numbers not causing a change of course in the U.S. decision to reopen its borders or dampening the excitement of these travellers. Oh, it's just amazing, yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a long time waiting <laughs> to find out. Jake, this comes, of course, at a time when a beleaguered travel industry needed a boost. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost by the American uh, 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 travel industry alone. Uh, we've been hearing from the president of United Airlines who said that already and within days of that announcement of the reopening of the American borders, it had seen its highest levels of transatlantic bookings since the pandemic began. So back uh, above, rather, 2019 levels. So a remarkable boost. The question is, though, Jake, how long that's going to last? All right, Melissa Bell, merci beaucoup. I want to bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So Sanjay, let, let's take stock of, the, of this decision by the Biden administration. COVID cases in Europe have been going up, I think it's fair to say, at an alarming rate for weeks now. But at the same time, the Biden administration is reopening borders to international travelers as long as they've been vaccinated. Is that following the science? The, the data doesn't seem, from my point of view, to, to back up this decision. Well, you know, the, the thing about it is, Jake, that if you look at what's been going in the United States and Europe and compare it to the rest of the world, we can show that uh, the numbers have been going up there. But when you drill down on that, it's, you know, it's primarily among unvaccinated people. So, you know, as Melissa was describing, these travel requirements are that people have to be vaccinated and they also have to show proof of a negative test uh, as well. Um, I think when you add those two layers in, I mean, that offers significant protection. Where we're seeing numbers go up, whether it's in pockets in the United States or, as you saw there in Europe, it's still primarily among the unvaccinated. As much as we talk about boosters and all these other things, that's still the fundamental problem. So with those specific requirements, I think it's, it's, it's much safer, obviously, to let people in. 
Here in the U.S., there's this alarming new poll getting at the spread of, of disinformation and misinformation about COVID. The Kaiser Family Foundation polled Americans who had heard a, about at least one COVID myth. 78% of them either believed the false statement or weren't sure if it was true or false. Some of these myths that we're talking about, uh, that the government is exaggerating the number of COVID deaths or that vaccines can cause infertility or the vaccines contain a microchip or vaccines can change your DNA, all of this false. And this isn't an old survey. This poll wrapped up just two weeks ago. Does it feel like people have largely given up on trying to figure out what's real and what's not? It may feel that way. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who have not given up. I certainly haven't given up. I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying to reach into communities where a lot of that misinformation is being spread. I mean, I remember talking to Dr. Peter Hotez about this, who's been dealing with misinformation around vaccines long before this pandemic. And I think there was a sense, you know, years ago, look, don't don't give it more fuel. Don't don't try and, uh, you know, rise this uh, raise this misinformation to levels where it spreads more easily. Those days have passed. Uh, the information misinformation travels faster sometimes than the virus itself. So I think it's imperative for people to to speak up more than ever. What they find, Jake, I found interesting as part of these surveys as well, is that the people that are trusted the most are people within people's own social circles. So if you are someone who's done the homework, gotten vaccinated, whatever it may be, then and talk about it with your friends, neighbors, colleagues, whatever, that seems to make the biggest difference of all. The Biden administration had until this hour to respond to a federal appeals court that temporarily blocked the new vaccine rule that would have required private businesses with 100 or more employees along with certain healthcare workers and federal contractors, to get vaccinated by January 4th. Sanjay, what might be the medical impact if a court says this mandate cannot be implemented? Well, I mean, first of all, I'll preface by saying we're about 58% vaccinated. We're going into the winter months. It's cooler, it's drier. People are going to be indoors clustering together uh, more so than they have in a long time. So there's a lot of things that potentially increase the risk, and the vaccines can help uh, you know, uh, really reduce that risk quite a bit. Um, it, it, we know that these mandates, they're not palatable in a lot of sectors of society, but they work. United Airlines, uh, in August, they were about 59% of the workforce vaccinated. Uh, now they're closer to 99%. Let me just show you among healthcare workers quickly. I mean, you know, again, the misinformation we talked to can apply to healthcare workers as well. When it looked at flu uh, overall, they say overall you're about 80% vaccinated. But look at the places where there's mandates versus not. So these are healthcare workers who are taking care of vulnerable people. They need to obviously be protected as much as possible so they don't get sick or spread the virus to others. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Six million dollars of ransom payment now in the hands of the U.S. government after two hackers have been charged with a massive operation. Stay with us. In our tech league, tech lead charges in a major cyber attack that targeted as many as 1,500 companies. Attorney General Merrick Garland today announcing charges against a Ukrainian man accused of raking in millions from the ransomware attacks, including a a crippling one during the July 4th holiday. And and he's not the only one. CNN's Evan Perez joins us live with more on this. And Evan, this was a significant move for the Biden administration. What more are you learning about the charges? Well, the charges that they announced uh, today against uh, Yaroslav Vysinsky, he is a Ukrainian national. He was arrested last month, Jake, in Poland. And he is the one, according to the Justice Department, according to these charges that were unsealed today, that he was behind the attack over Fourth of July weekend uh, against Casayas, a software company 
uh, it was infected, uh, infected hundreds, uh, about 1,500 companies in all were, were affected. And according to the Justice Department, obviously, this is, a, uh, this is part of a, 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 a gang, a criminal gang, uh, that's behind this, uh, this software, this ransomware, called Our Evil. And they've been essentially getting uh, millions of dollars from victim companies that have been infected with this ransomware. Uh, they also announced today that they were able to seize $6 million from another figure who was connected to Our Evil. His name is Yevgeny Polyanin, and he is at large believed to be in Russia. He's a Russian national. Uh, according to the Justice Department, they were able to get $6 million uh, that they know was connected to ransomware that went to him. Hmm. Right now, there's no requirement for companies that are hit with these ransomware attacks uh, to notify the FBI. And obviously, the ransom, the, mal, the, the, the bad guys say, don't contact the FBI. Right. Is the Biden administration doing anything to change that? Yeah, they are. They're trying to. And one of the things you heard today from the attorney general, from the FBI director, they're begging Congress to pass a law to require companies to come to the FBI and tell them when they've been hit with ransomware. Uh, the FBI needs this information so they can try to at least try to, again, like try to save some of this money and to try to discourage uh, the ransomware, uh, these attackers from doing these attacks. Um, right now, there's some legislation, uh, bipartisan legislation to try to do that. But Congress has been kind of unwilling, frankly, to regulate some of this over the last few years. Jim. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Barack Obama back on the world stage and now blaming uh, Donald Trump for, quote, four years of act- active hostility when it comes to the climate crisis. That's next. There are times where I feel discouraged. There are times where the future seems somewhat bleak. There are times where I am doubtful that humanity can get its act together before it's too late. We can't afford hopelessness. Our Earth Matters series and world lead begin with former President Barack Obama back on the world stage at the Global Climate Conference in Scotland, as CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now. Obama not only tried to rally world leaders to not give up, he also took a few swipes at Donald Trump. Former President Barack Obama back on the world stage speaking out in Glasgow, Scotland at an international gathering on climate change, COP26, trying to convince the world that America is still serious about fighting rising global temperatures. The U.S. has to lead. In an urgent and very political speech, Obama expressed regret over the Trump administration's inaction on climate change. Back in the United States, of course, some of our progress stalled when my successor decided to unilaterally pull out of the Paris Agreement in his first year in office. I wasn't real happy about that. In an effort to shore up U.S. credibility, Obama laid out progress made in the U.S. even without leadership from the White House. In the U.S. alone, more than three million people now work in clean energy-related jobs. That is more than the number of people currently employed by the entire fossil fuel industry. So despite four years of active hostility toward climate science coming from the very top of our federal government, the American people managed to still meet our original commitment under the Paris Agreement. World leaders at this summit are under pressure to outline specifics on how they will cut greenhouse emissions by 2050. 
A huge crowd waiting and cheering for Obama as he arrived for a roundtable discussion with young leaders who want to see more dramatic action. The danger of, of our activism is, is that we're typically talking to people who already agree with us. We do, we're not oftentimes talking to big parts of our populations that either don't agree with us or at least have different priorities. Including from the largest emitters, China and Russia, whose leaders were absent from the conference, Obama echoing those concerns. And their national plans so far reflect what appears to be a dangerous lack of urgency, a willingness to maintain the status quo on the part of those governments. And that's a shame. And Jake, uh, Obama also focusing his attention towards the younger generation, uh, telling them that they need to focus on their messaging, uh, saying that tweets and yelling at the other side will not convert the unconverted, saying that they need to focus on citizens whose livelihoods are essentially tied to climate change and tied to dirtier sources of energy, trying to bring those people on board. He says it's a lost cause trying to convince the fossil fuel industry. Um, but Jake, highlighting again the fact that the former president was even here at all, taking the world stage just speaks to how high the stakes are. Jake? All right, Renee Marsh in Scotland for us. Thank you so much for that report. With us right now, Chris Mooney, one of the authors of uh, a, a frankly disheartening Washington Post investigation that, that found most countries' pledges to cut down on greenhouse gases are based on flawed data, to say the least. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, you laid out in your very compelling piece that many countries are under-reporting their emissions. Countries like Russia, some Persian Gulf countries, China. Who's the worst offender? Well, it kind of it's hard to say worst. Uh, certainly, we we pointed out that Malaysia is subtracting a huge amount from its emissions total because of claims about what's happening with land use that don't seem to really hold up and could be emitting hundreds of million ton, tons more greenhouse gases than uh, than are shown in their bottom line. But the problem here really is that there are many many countries that are pledging to cut emissions but are not fully taking responsibility for all emissions within their borders. And until until those two things get squared, it's going to be hard to judge what the progress really is. Your investigation also found dozens of countries don't report all their missions at all, as you just note. What's being left out? What are they not reporting? Uh, so in the case uh, that you mentioned, that's fluorinated gases. They come from air conditioning, um, refrigeration, electric power. They're sort of synthetic gases that are extremely powerful in warming the atmosphere and uh, quite elusive. We also found that methane, which is another super warming gas, is being, you know, hundreds, sorry, excuse me, tens of millions of tons of methane are being missed, uh, not reported by the countries. And that is uh, causing the planet to warm faster than it would otherwise right now. And you found some countries are, are fudging their numbers by claiming natural forest regrowth is absorbing greenhouse gases? Right. The rules are currently drawn in such a way that countries can claim their entire areas in, in the U.S., Russia, uh, China, we're talking about enormous areas and can claim uh, carbon that is being stored in the trees across all these areas. And that's even if they didn't directly cause that to happen. Um, that, that means they might not have planted trees. Uh, they might not have taken any particular kind of uh, direct restoration action. But nevertheless, just if it's being stored, they're claiming it and that reduces their bottom line. And so then they can claim uh, to get to net zero emissions even while having emissions. 
so this is another form of innocence underreporting what your real impact is on the world. A powerful and very important report in The Washington Post. Uh, Chris Mooney, thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you again. Thank you. It's being called an election in name only. As Nicaraguans tell CNN, people are fearful and locked in their homes. Even those living abroad afraid of the crackdown by the country's leader. Stay with us. In our world lead, a sham, illegitimate, an election in name only. These are just some of the expressions of global outrage today about Nicaragua's so-called presidential election in which longtime socialist leader Daniel Ortega, who came onto the world stage in the 80s as a revolutionary fighting against a U.S.-backed dictatorship, remained in power for his fourth straight term by doing exactly what he once fought against, jailing his opposition, essentially making himself the only viable presidential candidate. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports, Ortega's dictatorial moves extend well past politics. He calls himself an elected president, but for many, Daniel Ortega is a dictator whose regime is getting stronger and more dangerous. Under his rule, a campaign of political terror has gripped the country. Dissent can lead to house arrest, jail time. Some even allege they've been tortured. It is a dangerous time in Nicaragua, something we tried to go see firsthand. For that, we took a bus in northwestern Costa Rica to the Nicaraguan border, entering via land to try and avoid the attention of the authorities. But after 10 minutes with an immigration official, it was clear we were not getting in. So they just took our passports and our Mexican residency card and asked if anyone on the team worked for CNN, even though we did not offer that information. It's clear that they know who we are. And soon after, immigration officials denied our entry. So we've been formally escorted out of the country. After waiting three hours, they told us that we need to send a formal request to the government in order to be allowed in without giving us any reason as to why we weren't allowed in. They won't answer our questions. And so now officially we're back on the Costa Rican side. Um, Clearly they don't want people like us inside the country. Our experience, just a small example of the staggering level of government control faced by Nicaraguans. Since June, dozens of perceived enemies of the regime have been thrown into jail, while countless others have been harassed and followed. In roughly a dozen interviews CNN conducted with people inside the country, each said most neighbors won't even talk politics anymore, fearful they could be denounced as traitors. One current government official would only speak to us over the phone as he stood in an empty field, fearful of being heard. He says only Ortega's followers are the ones who can walk freely. The vast majority of us live like hostages. Every time I leave my home, I'm terrified. We granted him anonymity because he said government forces surveil his house constantly. If they knew he was speaking to foreign journalists, he says, he'd be imprisoned. I was afraid to speak with you, but at the same time, the conviction and the hope that our voice will reach others around the world makes us take the risk. It has certainly reached other Nicaraguans around the world, tens of thousands of whom have fled the country since government crackdowns ramped up in 2018. But for many, the terror of the Ortega regime doesn't stop at the border. Jorge spoke to us from an undisclosed location in Mexico. He says he was tortured by Nicaraguan police after participating in anti-government protests in 2018. 
even alleging they used a razor blade to carve the word plomo into his leg, a threat of future violence. Someone even spray-painted his home, writing, quote, if you f*** around, you die. He says people I had grown up with and known had become my enemies. He fled to Guatemala and felt safe for a bit until he received this photo. Someone he says who worked for the Nicaraguan government snapped this picture of him at the bus stop he used every day, writing, quote, you thought the Guatemalans would take care of you? You and your family are going to pay in blood. My family and I do not feel safe because we know what they can do. We wouldn't be the first or the last Nicaraguan to be murdered outside the country. He's still receiving threats in Mexico, and though CNN has no way to know for certain that Nicaraguan state agents were threatening him, that is the consistent fear of so many here in San Jose, Costa Rica, where thousands of Nicaraguans have fled since 2018. There, we met with this group of Nicaraguan exiles, each of whom say they've received threats from the Ortega regime since fleeing in the last few years. One story from Raisa Hope stood out. A Nicaraguan activist, she fled back in 2019 after threats to her life. She now runs a flower shop in San Jose, where her friend, Berenice Zeladon, a fellow Nicaraguan activist, visits her often. About a month ago, a man entered the shop closed the door, and pointed a gun. He told us, stop around, mother We said, don't hurt us, but he started strangling me. Raisa was pistol whipped and knocked out. Berenice kicked to the floor. She suffered knee fractures as a result. Crying, she says, the first thing I thought about, my son, this man is going to kill us. Eventually, the man left without stealing anything. Both women filed a police report and suspect the same thing. They were targeted by Nicaraguan agents. Nicaraguan human rights groups say they've recorded dozens of such suspected attacks in Costa Rica in recent years, though proving the Nicaraguan government is behind them is near impossible. Officially, Costa Rica's government says they've found no such cases of Nicaraguan spies attacking exiles. We're always talking to Nicaragua, he says, and maintaining a conversation to respect each other's sovereignty. But not everyone in the government agrees. A senior government official with deep knowledge of the situation tells CNN there are, in fact, Nicaraguan intelligence operatives working right now here in Costa Rica, including those that target Nicaraguan exiles, adding the number of operatives working here has increased since Nicaraguans began arriving in mass back in 2018. The government, the source says, is hesitant to speak out publicly on the issue, fearing it could damage diplomatic relations at a tenuous time. On Sunday, protests were held in San Jose, people chanting and waving the Nicaraguan flag. But in Nicaragua, things were much quieter. No protests are allowed these days, but it doesn't mean that they're not happening. CNN spoke to several people who said they would not vote a form of quiet protest, they said, refusing to participate in the coronation of a dictator. And Jake, Nicaraguan state media reporting that Ortega has run, won more than 75% of the vote, results that we know are illegitimate. But the question is, what does an Ortega regime do now that it is more emboldened? Our source in the Costa Rican government says he only expects things to get worse. Jake. All right, from a dictator to a dictator. Matt Rivers, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Elon Musk creates a Twitter quote-unquote poll, and suddenly Tesla's market value drops by billions of dollars. We'll explain next.
In our money lead, the richest person in the world asking for financial advice from Twitter. What could go wrong? Over the weekend, Elon Musk asked his followers if he should sell 10% of his Tesla stock. More than 3 million people weighed in in the very unscientific poll. 58% of them said sell. Musk, declaring himself to be a man of his word, tweeted, I will abide by the results of this poll, whichever way it goes. However, the poll does give his followers a somewhat false sense of agency, as if it's a move Musk was like, as it is likely a move that Musk was going to make anyway. He could be facing an 11 to 16 billion dollar tax bill in the next year on the gains his stock has made, and he might need to raise cash to pay that huge tax bill. But trading his massive stock sale, like choosing an outfit, cost Tesla today the stock diving about five percent after Mr. Musk's Twitter stunt. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. A reminder, if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a little place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.